Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a musician, songwriter, and record producer, and one of the most popular and versatile and successful recording artists of his generation. As both a solo artist and the lead singer of the 60s group, Tommy James and the Shondells, he recorded 14 top 40 hits, including the top 10 singles, I Think We're Alone Now, Crystal Blue Persuasion, Sweet Cherry Wine, Dragon the Line, the rock anthem, Money Money, and the number one hits, Hanky Panky and Crimson and Clover. In a career spanning seven decades, he's played to sold-out arenas, had his songs covered by everyone, from Prince to R.E.M. to Bruce Springsteen. And he's recorded 23 gold singles, nine gold and platinum albums and sold over 100 million records worldwide. His fascinating and at times frightening memoir is called Me, the Mob, and the Music. And trust me, once you start reading it, you won't be able to put it down. Please welcome to the podcast a show business survivor and a genuine rock and roll icon, Tommy James. Well, thank you. Yes. Wow. Well, now I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm impressed. Yes. <laughs> Welcome, Tommy. And jo- Jonathan Ash is also here with Tommy. That's right. A, a gifted songwriter and, and, and a singer and... Uh, Chandelier. Jazz, jazz guitarist. What do you call him? Chandelier. Oh, he's a chandelier. Right. Which is an offshoot. He's not an original chandel. Well, but he's it's, a... it's an appendage. Oh, I'm, yeah. a pra- <laughs> I'm a practicing chandelist. <laughs> not a shonda. 
and and uh, he's a chandelier guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am so proud to do the show. I want to tell you, I'm a huge, huge fan. Oh, thank and you. And I just, uh, you know, I've listened to you before, and I thank you so much. Oh, thank you. What a what a kick! It's nice great. thing to hear, huh? And and to show what a wild career you've had, uh, no less than Martin Scorsese wa- wanted to do a movie. Well, you know, you. we have been uh, really lucky with the with the book, which you're talking about, "Me, the Mob, and the Music," which came out several years ago. And as soon as we uh, uh, released the book, it was released through Simon and Schuster. Um, we started getting calls for the movie rights and for the Broadway rights. And uh, actually, uh, Barbara DeFina is producing the movie, and um, uh, Matthew Stone just did the uh, screenplay, and a director is being obtained <laughs> right <Yes>. now <laughs> as we speak. And things are moving along uh, at a really nice clip, and I am so... You know, I've never done anything like this before. I've never done a film before, and I, I'm a real novice in this. And I uh, am getting one hell of an education. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's really amazing because everyone who comes on the uh, comes on the team uh, is a separate negotiation, and, you know, everybody's got a schedule and an ego and everything. So we are really uh, uh, moving forward with this, and I'm I'm just as happy as I can be. And your first song, this is very weird, you stole from a group who they themselves stole from another yes. group. <laughs> Equal opportunity. <laughs> We're talking about Hanky Panky? Yeah, 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 Hanky Panky. Well, this, is, of course, is back in high school. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, yes, I uh, saw, uh, well, some friends of mine called the Rivieras made it with a record called California. Oh, sure. sure. And I was I so jealous I couldn't stand it. I'm from a little town in Michigan called Niles, Michigan. And uh, I worked in a record shop all through high school and I, and I had my band all through school. And um, so I was so jealous I couldn't stand myself. And uh, finally, I, uh, uh, we had two little label deals when I was in high school, one in junior high, one in senior and the latter one uh, was a little label called Snap Records, and it was uh, run by a guy named Jack Douglas, who was uh, a DJ at WNIL Radio Studios in Niles. And uh, so he came in and asked me if I would want to record for his label, my band and I. And uh, we said, uh, yes! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there was. In your best Gilbert Godfrey yes, imitation. Yes, I did, actually. <laughs> So, uh, but, uh, you know, one of the four sides uh, was Hanky Panky, which ended up being our first hit. And I had actually seen another group play it and saw what it did to people, putting people on the dance floor, which is really what it was all about. Now, when it first came out, it was just like a moderate. A local dud, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was, like three states? It, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it yeah. went number one in about four blocks. Okay. and uh, But we had no distribution, so the record died. This is in 1964 it was released. I was a junior. And uh, so the record kind of came and went. And the following year, I graduated in 65. And I took my band on the road. We played uh, oh, Chicago up through uh, Wisconsin and Illinois. And... Um, uh, so, uh, you know, we had forgotten about the record. 
So in early 1966, I'm playing this dumpy little club in Janesville, Wisconsin. Yeah. And right in the middle of my two weeks, the IRS shuts the guy down for not yeah. paying his <laughs> And we get sent home. So I, we went home feeling like real dogs, you know, real losers. And uh, as soon as I got home, that's how the good Lord works. Because as soon as I got home, I got the call that changed my life. That uh, uh, Hanky Panky, this record that I had uh, recorded two years before that, um, was sitting at, they had bootlegged it and, and sold 80,000 copies in 10 days and was sitting at number one in the city of Pittsburgh. And of course, Pittsburgh was a major market, so that was a big deal. And I, I said, who is this? <laughs> you know, I, they finally convinced me they were for real. And I went to Pittsburgh and I couldn't put the original band back together. So I went there by myself and the record producer, Jack Douglas, and sure enough, we're number one outside the city limits. I'm nobody. As soon as we, you know, go into How the weird. tunnel and come out the other side, I'm a rock star. And so I basically uh, picked a group from Pittsburgh to be uh, the the new Shondells. And um, uh, we went to New York a, a week later, and uh, that was how it started. A Jeff Barry song. Well, yeah, there's yeah. lots more, but El- I just El- Ellie Greenwich. I'll stop Barry. and take a breath yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you had like all these major record labels yes. wanting you. When we got to New York, uh, it was fascinating. Actually, I had never been to New York before. I'm like a like a frog in a hailstorm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, all of the labels said yes. I, we couldn't believe it. Uh, CBS, uh, RCA. Um, Atlantic, all the major labels, and uh, then uh, oh, labels like Kamasutra. You remember Kamasutra? And uh, finally, the last place we took the record to was Roulette Records. Now, Roulette was a fairly large indie label, and it was they'd had a lot of hits, and uh, so we left. We left a record, and it was uh, you know. But I was went to bed feeling real good that night, uh, feeling like we were going to sign with one of the majors. And uh, about nine o'clock the next morning, uh, we started getting calls from all the people who had said yes the day before. Uh, now said, "Listen, Tom, we got to pass." I said, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> and I, I, I said, finally, Jerry Wexler at Atlantic uh, told us the truth that Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, uh, had called all the other labels and scared them off. He says, "This is my record." <laughs> <laughs> Back off. So, and, what, and so tell us a little about Morris Levy. Sure. Well, um, <laughs> of course, the thing that made it interesting is that Morris Levy was right out of the movies. I mean, he talked like this. He was about <laughs> he was about three hundred pounds. He he was about six four and a half or five, and uh, just a really big, intimidating guy. And of course, what we didn't know. When, uh, you know, it was the first offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, what, <laughs> what we didn't know at the time when we signed was that Roulette Records, in addition to being a functioning indie label and a pretty good one, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York, which we didn't know anything about. We found out later. And uh, so meeting Morris Levy was really interesting. And uh, that was where we ended up. So, well, you're a kid. You're 19 years um, old. Yeah. When I'm all this is happening. Right. First so, trip to New York. Amazing. It, it must be pretty flattering that Morris Levy was uh, literally uh, willing to kill 
for you to sign with. <laughs> the Godfather well, of the music. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you the, the, the truth. Um, you know, we, of course, didn't know who we were rubbing shoulders with. And, uh, you know, these guys would use uh, roulette as a, a social club, basically. And, you know, we'd meet somebody in Morris's office, and a week later I'd see him on TV being taken out of a warehouse in New Jersey, you know, you know, in handcuffs doing the perp walk. And I said, isn't that the guy we just met at Morris's office? And it would be, you know. And Morris Levy and all the guys that worked for him, you said in the book. Yeah. Always had a baseball bat in arms. <laughs> yeah, that's a story. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the truth. I, were, were they ball players? Or? Play a great yeah, game yeah, of softball. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, anyway, I, you know what happened was uh, I'll never forget at the signing, uh, two two big tough guys come uh, walking into the to the Morris's office and say, "Mice, can we see you a minute?" And he goes, he goes "Excuse me." Everybody talked like this. Yeah. <laughs> I, they went to school. So, uh, uh, you know, he went over and we could just, we could hear the conversation and we'd, we'd hear things like, you had to break the guy's legs. <laughs> and I'm thinking, bootleg in the record. Uh, and I'd turn over like this to Red Schwartz, who was the promo man, and I, he'd say, well, Tom, uh, first trip to New York? <laughs> I'm trying to make small talk. And uh, so anyway, that's how it went. And I, so I, what I'm saying, is, but what's so amazing was they took the record to number one. They actually did. They actually did a great job of promoting the record. We had one hit after another and um, uh, they made it number one all over the all over the world. And, you know, the funny part about all this is that if we'd have gone with one of the corporate labels, hey, you said we, you would have been yeah, a one hit wonder. Exactly. Yeah. We'd have been lucky to be a one-hit wonder. You know, uh, the, uh, we'd have been handed over to some in-house A&R guy, and that's probably the last time anybody would have heard from so us. So this was bad news, good news. Yes. And, signing with Morris. And that, the whole story was yeah. was uh, good, bad, love, hate. Well, they were in the singles business. They knew how to, they they knew were. How to, they knew how to make hit records. They knew how to make and, hits. And Morris was one – They. Called him the godfather of the music business. Yeah, he had a lot of stuff going on. Of course, we were walking on eggshells up there because <laughs> there was so much hanky-panky going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, you told one story in the book mm-hmm. where Morris found out that there was some guy bootlegging. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, well, yeah. that was that was at the signing. Uh, we found out that... Uh, uh, Morris found out somebody was bootlegging one of his records, and uh, well, he would turn to you know his secretary uh, Karen uh, and say, uh, "Where's my baseball bat? <laughs> Call my lawyer." <laughs> As he was leaving, you know, you knew something was about to happen. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that would go on at Roulette, and I, I honestly, uh, there was this. I, I constantly had these mixed feelings because you know once we realized that mechanical royalties were not going to happen um you know we had to make a decision do we stay here uh take our life on our hands and yeah. try to leave because uh, you know jimmy rogers uh, earlier had yeah, a tell us about jimmy rogers oh wait but just to complete that other story oh i know which they, one you want they, the, yeah the guy in the warehouse yeah he was printing it and yeah, yeah. So 
Uh, well, you know, Morris would uh, wouldn't hesitate to you know taking some of his goons in there, and uh, and of course, then he'd do something nice. You know, he would. Uh, Remember the guy? Yeah, is that the story about yes, where the yes. guy? Yeah, the, the guy's was, kid they started was, smashing. Yeah, first they went in and smashed yes. this guy's machine. Yes. Then they douse him with gasoline too, and 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 Morris lit a match. Well, uh, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean that uh, was uh, yeah, but I mean, but but before he did all that, before I mean, he didn't follow through with that. Right, but, right, right. But the guy uh, had a sick kid or yeah, something, yeah. and Morris. Put the kid in the hospital. I don't. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I think. I don't the mean he guy, put him in the hospital. No, right. I mean he, the guy started. He paid for his hospital. crying yeah. and pleading that my I'm doing it because my son needs an operation. Right. And then Morris ended up paying for the operation. Yeah, yeah. yeah they yeah. said they. You said in the book that Morris went with this guy to the hospital yes. to make sure, or right. he'd kill him if he was lying. Well, you know the the thing of it is. Um, I always, you know, Morris was probably the most fascinating character I ever met in my life because he was such a dichotomy. He was so schizophrenic. Uh, it was, you know, uh, I don't mean he was nuts. I mean that 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 uh, he was unpredictable. And uh, in many ways, he had some very noble qualities, but he always had this dark side. And I used to watch him do business, and I'd be fascinated watching him uh, operate, you know, yeah, he, he and he knew everybody. I mean, uh, you know, the next person that came in the office could be Cardinal Spellman. Right. Yeah, because right, you had said that he came in with his henchmen, smashed all this guy's machines, yeah. uh, doused the records with gasoline, and then when they went to the hospital, uh, his this guy's son was in the hospital, right. and Morris Levy called the doctor over and said, how much is this operation right. going to cost? And he took out his checkbook. Yeah. And he signed it yes. and handed it to the doctor. Yes. And Isn't that an incredible story? That's something, it's if wild. I saw in a movie, I wouldn't believe I know. It. Well, that's why the yeah. book would make such a great movie. Well, you know something? I I, I feel like um, I had this, like I say, it was, it, it was uh, you know, like an abusive father-son relationship. And, and, uh, you know, the slaps the kid around, but he sends him to college, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, it was, it was, it was that kind of a relationship. And I, uh, you know, when Morris passed away, I really missed the guy, you know, in so many ways, <laughs> it's strange to say, but I mean, that is, uh, you, you were what on, I'm left with after you were on the road when he passed away. So you, I didn't, was. you didn't really have closure. I, I was. And in the movie, uh, and in the book, uh, we have this sort of imaginary conversation at the very end. In fact, we did this very new version of I Think We're Alone Now, um, slow, acoustic, very pretty. Um, and it's amazing how the lyrics held up in this middle of this very solemn moment when Morris died. Uh, and it's going to be the closing credits of the movie is, is this version of I Think We're Alone Now. But I, I was uh, literally... Very shocked. I didn't know that it was that close, uh, that he was that close to dying. And I was going to go up and see him the following day when I got back to New York. And uh, I didn't. I never got a chance uh, to say what I wanted to say to him. And, and it's so strange because it's kind of like how men and women will talk about a relationship and they'll say, well, it's complicated. <laughs> yes. It was well, complicated. It was complicated. <laughs> and, and it was like, because Morris Levy, 
he cheated you. It was yeah. like highway robbery. It's like $40 million or something like But on the other hand, uh, he, uh, you know, every time I go to say something nasty about Morris and Roulette, if it wasn't for Morris, there wouldn't be a Tommy James. And I, I, seriously, yeah. and, and I'm very aware of that fact. So I have to almost look at this philosophically and almost spiritually I have to yeah. look at it because, uh, uh, you know, the guy— uh, you know, he was convicted. He was, he was, he went through a lot of bad stuff, but he, he made me happen, made the group happen and did so many things. I mean, he got me out of going to Vietnam. I, I would have been a, uh, I was, I was, would have been on my way. Uh, that's an interesting story, story in the book. Yeah. Suddenly you're 4F. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm mean, not sure why. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Neither was anybody else. Calls were made. Well, just real quick, Morris was. Uh, well, let me. You know that. Let me set this up a little bit. I was three uh, A. I was married and had a child, and uh, this is the week I did my first Ed Sullivan show, uh, February of '69, um, and I uh, had gotten my. Uh, draft physical notice in the mail and and told that 3A was no longer a deferment. Everybody was 1A. So we were going. You know, they, that's when they were taking, you know, blind nuns to Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> if you had a heartbeat, you were going to Vietnam. So um, uh, Morris, as it was was friends, was on the board of directors of the Chemical Bank. Wow. You talk about the Fox Garden, the hen house, right? And uh one of his best friends who was also on the, on the board was the head of the selective service in New York and uh i'm not going to mention any names. oh no <laughs> so uh, all i know is that when i got i took my physical and at the end of the day this uh uh, uh very nasty looking sergeant that uh uh you know gives you your draft card and uh you know you you're classification uh, says to me, I don't know who you know, but and he throws down the card and it's 4F and nobody was getting a 4F. You know, they were getting a 1Y, which means come back in a year. So um, I was, I just, I didn't argue with him. No. And I just, you know, left, but that was just so amazing. And the double-edged sword again, that was, was Morris, Morris Levy. Levy. And he was a yeah. powerful guy. Yeah. And, and, in typical mob fashion, you say in the book, like, any favor you'd ask of him, he would do for you, with the exception of paying you your money. <laughs> right. right. Isn't that thing. funny, though? How, you know, he'd rat, he'd, John's laughing. He was worth yeah. tens of millions of dollars, but he would have still rather stolen 5000 from you. Yes. You know, he, 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 he would choose the dark side. Yeah, well, you have a line in the book that he would rather do a deal dishonestly yes. for a dollar Took pleasure than, than a $10 million deal yes. legitimately. And he could have been a CEO of any major corporation. This guy was brilliant. He could hear hits. He could uh, uh, leap tall buildings at a single yeah. bar. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the, he was just amazing. And so I – but I would watch this, and that's part of what made him so fascinating. And, and But in typical mob fashion, he would do you a favor, mm-hmm. but he would remember it. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. You had to do anything he asked you to do after well, that. Well, it, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, there was uh, basically, you know, not not getting nuts about not getting royalties. Now, we don't get me wrong. We weren't paupers. I mean, we're getting, uh, you, know, you know, we were we had our monies from touring and from BMI, from the radio airplay, from um, uh, commercials and all the other things we were doing. But, um, you know, mechanical royalties were just not going to happen. And I think a lot of um, a, a lot of, of favors that was that boiled down to a lot of favors as far as he was concerned for me not, you know, going after my royalties. Yeah. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, this is Bill Macy, and you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing podcast. Amazing colossal podcast. Amazing colossal. I'll do it again. Okay. Hi, this is Bill Macy. You're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing podcast. <laughs> colossal. Yeah, but you, you keep leaving out colossal. You, you know, you can improvise it, Bill, and say anything you want. Isn't this Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal podcast with Bill Macy. Yes. That's what I just said. And then there's more. That uncompromising, enterprising, anything but tranquilizing. It's Gilbert and Frank's amazing colossal podcast. Hey Gil, but, yeah. Why don't we, as, as long as the, we have the guitars here and we want to squeeze a couple of songs in, why don't we? Uh, now, are we getting paid for this? No. <laughs> now it's did, just did, like Gilbert's the new Morris Levy. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm still singing for my supper here. <laughs> now can I just, we do Moni Moni? Well, you want to do that one first? Yeah. I thought. Okay. Why don't we? Why don't we? You do... want to sing "Dragon in the Line" with me, or I think I we're alone. Dragon the Line. He doesn't have the lyrics. He doesn't oh. have the lyrics. How for about Dragon I the think line. we're alone? Eh? Okay. Well, do you okay. want to do your your song first? Uh, no, no, no. Well, why don't right. we do? I think you're alone. We, okay. I think we're alone now, and Gilbert will join in. Okay. All and right. then you guys can do two that are unmolested. <laughs> I see. <laughs> well, let's see. We're going to indulge Gilbert. What do you think, Gil? Yes. Children behave. There you go. <laughs> That's what they say when we're together. And watch how you play. No publishing on this. <laughs> they don't understand. And so we're running just as fast as we can. Just stay with them, Gil. <laughs> Holding on to one another's hand. Trying to get away into the night And then you put your arms around me And it tumbled to 
there's a crowd and then you say, I think we're alone now. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. I think we're alone now. The beating of our hearts is the only sound. Look at the wait a minute. Oh, oh. <laughs> Look, Look at, at the, the wave. <laughs> we gotta hide what we're doing. Oh yeah. Cause what would they say <laughs> if they only knew? And so we're running just as fast as we can, holding on to one another's hand, trying to get away into the night. And then you put your arms around me as we tumble to the ground, and then you say. I think we're alone now. Uh -huh. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. I think we're alone now. The beating of our hearts is the only sound. I just hold your horse. Okay. <laughs> I, think I think we're, we're alone, alone now. now. There doesn't, doesn't seem, seem to be anyone around. The only sound I think we're alone now There doesn't seem to be anyone around <laughs> Not bad Yeah oh. Eat your heart out, Tiffany <laughs> This is very spontaneous, you do know that <laughs> Wow, we appreciate the way you carried him there, Tom well, thank you. <laughs> I thought I was going to join you. Get a tambourine, you got a yeah. gig. <laughs> <laughs> a, another person that fascinated me, because the way he came about in the business, and, and it's like a who's who of the mob world and murders, and that's Tommy Boley. And and so what was there was a whole history of one guy shooting the other and the other guy <laughs> stabbing that one and Tommy came to a bad end, huh? Well, I'll tell you. Um, well, um, the the best way I can explain it is Tommy Ebley was Morris, one of Morris's main partners up there, and uh, he was uh, a, a a a big guy in. Um, the Genovese family. Now, this is before February of, uh, of uh, 69. Uh, and he was up there a, a lot. And um, so what happened was um, uh, Valentine's Day of 1969, um, uh, Vito Genovese died in prison. Uh, and Tommy Eberle was uh, became the the Don or the boss of the family. And um, so uh, this really <laughs> made Morris's position interesting because, you know, Morris, Morris was his partner in, in Roulette Records. So uh, what happened was that uh, uh, a mob war broke out. in there. What, it, it, Well, Eberly was a very uh, influential guy. And uh, uh, also, over the, uh, you know, uh, there was uh, Vinny Gigante. Oh, Vinny the all, Chin. Yeah. yeah. 
who walked around in the bathrobe. And right, sure. Oh, Remember yes. he was recently trying to prove his insanity by walking yes. around New York in a he bathrobe? he walked around Little Italy in a speed-up bathrobe. That's the yeah. guy. That, like, so he was crazy. Uh, yeah. He was uh, also there quite often. And uh, so this was a, you know, but but Tommy Eberle was, was the boss of the family. And uh, he was... Uh, he was killed actually in 1972 in June. Uh, we were playing the Brooklyn Paramount Theater that night. It was a Saturday night, and um, uh, about six blocks away, uh, he was assassinated. He was killed, and of course that just, you know, roulette just went nuts. Everything at roulette just went nuts uh, the following Monday morning when I got up there and I wrote about it in the book, but. Um, uh, it was it was quite a, an amazing moment, and it's that's about the time I started saying I got to get out of here. This oh. is just <laughs> this one way or another. This can't end well, and I, I'm leaving no yeah. matter what. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, well, we'll talk about that. Later. Yeah, let's talk, let's 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 introduce uh, uh, John here. Just tell us how you met, uh, how you guys got uh, connected in the uh, first place. Jonathan Ash was um, uh, actually I met him in 1966. Uh, um, in a in more in a, the trade winds the trade winds in a Newburgh. club Newburgh, in Newburgh, yeah. New York, and uh, uh, he was the the bass player in in a group called the Coachman, which just happens to be the old name of my group before Billy uh, King and the Coachman. Yeah, yeah good one. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, I met him there, and he was a good friend with Pete Lucia, who became our drummer. Um, uh, in 67 and John was always a good friend. I didn't have a place for him in the group, but John would always fill in if there was a, uh, an illness or if we needed somebody in the studio, John was on a lot of the hit records. Uh, Moni Moni played bass. Yep. Uh, he'd play uh, a guitar on many of them. And John has just been my friend for a very long time. And he's, uh, back with the group now. And it's, Awfully fun to have uh, John to kick around. <laughs> <laughs> see, oh, my story is going to sound really boring now. You see, <laughs> no, do it. So, tell, tell about so the, Moni, the Moni. Moni. The Moni Moni story is actually pretty funny. So, uh, I actually did get drafted. I was drafted in uh, 1968. You needed so Morris in your corner. Go, I did need him. Yeah. I needed him bad, but uh, I wound up going in. Came home on leave, and uh, Pete Lucia, our mutual friend, my was a childhood friend of mine, our drummer, yep. called us, called me, said, uh, "Listen, Tommy's going to do some demos. Would you like to come in and play bass?" I said, "Sure. What am I doing?" So uh, we go in and uh, started. We recorded all through the night, and uh, uh, one of the songs was "Do Something to Me," but the other, the other song, we had no idea what it was going to be. It was just a Lyric, no lyrics, no title. Party rock. Party rock and roll. You so, knew you wanted kind of a nonsense thing, like Boney Maroney? Well, or, yes. Or, or Hang on Sloopy yes, or something? Yes, we did. But we, you didn't? We, we, we had this, let me just tell them, we had this track with no lyrics. And, uh, you know, it just morphed uh, gradually into uh, what we know as Moni Moni today. But we had no title. It was the night before the recording session. We had the track. And um, we still had no title. We had lyrics, but we had no title. And we're looking for a sloopy, some some kind of silly, you know, mm-hmm. some two-syllable word. And so Richie Cordell, my songwriting partner, and I walk out on our terrace, on my terrace. I'm at 
uh, 52nd and 8th in New York. And we look up into the nighttime sky, and the first thing our eyes fall on is the Mutual of New York Insurance Company. M-O-N-Y. With, remember with the dollar sign yep. in the middle of the O yep. and gave you yep. the time and the weather? And we're looking at Moni. Moni! That's it! We don't see for your kid. It was like God saying, here's the turtle. And, and so uh, th- that became the title of the song. So John... So the rest of the story... Yes. ...is I went back to my base at Fort McClellan, Alabama... And so we recorded in May of 68, and the song came out in August of 68. So here I am outside. Somebody's got a boom box out there, and I, I hear this familiar music. I'm going, wow, wait a minute. That's me playing on that record. <laughs> and That's great. And all the GIs are going, oh, yeah, sure it is, Antonato. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. You know? Nobody believed So that was the, uh, that was <laughs> the Moni Moni story. Now, there's, there's one story in the book, because I remember when I was a kid watching the Beatles on Sullivan yeah. that night, and you were watching it with your parents. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, I, and I remember under John Lennon's picture, yes. it said, sorry, girls, he's married. Right. And what did your father say? <laughs> oh, that's funny. He says, I wonder which one of those queers he's married to. <laughs> okay, Dad. Dad wasn't a big rock fan. <laughs> you know, as long as we're talking about Sullivan, tell us about doing the Sullivan show. Okay, well, the what, first what kind of Sullivan experience? show, the first Sullivan show that I did was, well, it was terrifying. I don't know how else to say it. Um, I, you know, I... I the, the the week before, we had just finished the tour in, in L.A. For, uh, of, of the Canadian. We played across Canada with the Beach Boys, and we're down at the uh, the Riot House, you know, the Continental Hyatt House uh, in L.A., and we're watching uh, a couple of the Beach Boys were with us, and our guys were in there. We knew we were going to be on the Sullivan Show, and I tried to pick their brain for, you know, they, they had done the show a half dozen times, and we're like, Oh, so what happens? And so they tried to tell us, you know, Carl tried to tell me what, uh, uh, you know, what it was like that Sunday you do this and Monday you're, or Monday you're off and, and Tuesday you start in, in your makeups in your boots by the time you do the show. So uh, I was really kind of panicky. And uh, so uh, Ed, so we wanted to watch Ed Sullivan to introduce next week's guest. All right, right here. <laughs> said, I right here next week. The youngster be Tony Jones and the Spondells will be here. <laughs> That's great. That's, That's a, true, a damn good impression. So if I wasn't terrified before, I'm going nuts now, right? So we get to the show. The you know Monday was was off, and Tuesday we start uh, doing the rehearsals and getting the shots lined up and everything. And by the way, they the, the Sullivan crew was unbelievable. I mean, they were all 106, but nobody did TV better than these guys did. So, you know, gradually I was asked if I would do Crimson and Clover live. Now, you know that that's a train wreck waiting to happen, you know, especially the fade. There's no way they're going to get the fade right with the tremolo and everything. It's just not going to happen. So I beg him, uh, the producer, Bob Precht, who is Sullivan's son-in-law, uh, could you please uh, let me do a lip sync? And so they talked to her. I said, well, okay, but you got to give us a four track. 
so that we can mess with it so it doesn't sound like the record. Okay, okay. So I, the studio is two blocks away. I live a block away over here. Let me go to the studio, which I did. And I gave them four tracks of mono. <laughs> so, they, <laughs> so all they could do was raise or lower the volume. <laughs> so um, anyway, you know, the, the VU meters didn't all match either. I had it so there was more bass on one track than the other. So anyway, I gave it to them. They never knew the difference when we did it. But the one thing I forgot to, to talk about was talking to Ed after the show. If you're the headliner, you got to talk to Ed. And it completely slipped my mind. So after, you know, we get through the, oh, then <laughs> the first song I got to do, right? We ha- we were scheduled to do Moni Moni and then Crimson and Clover. Well, just before me on the show is Moms Mabley doing Abraham Martin. Oh, and incredible. <laughs> Anybody here? <laughs> and I'm, oh my God! The cameramen are crying. The audience is bawling. Uh, uh, the, you know, the the rest of the, uh, the crew back there, they're all crying. Everybody's just, and I got to go. Okay, let's put your hands together. Hey, here we go. And I got to do Moni Moni after uh, after Mom's Mabley, and watching Sullivan Boogaloo was a trip. <laughs> Wasn't John Biner on one of those shows? He was. We, he was. We, we had John here. Yes. We had him on the podcast. So anyway, after the show, after I'm done with Crimson and Clover, uh, uh, yeah, said, oh, come on over here. Now, Tommy, my boy, I understand you were born and raised in New York City. <laughs> no! <laughs> no, I wasn't! <laughs> so I explained, you know, I was born in Dayton, Ohio. I was raised in Niles, Michigan. I went to school here. We did that. And, and he said, well, that's wonderful. Once again, born and raised in New York City. <laughs> Tony Jones. That's true. So, <laughs> and the Spondells. <laughs> so anyway, that was my first Ed Sullivan show. And the Sullivan show was kind of. What do you want to do now? Well, I was going to say the Sullivan show was a turning point for you in in a number of ways because when you were a kid, you saw Elvis on there, and that was a that was a that was was a a circle had been made. Yeah, did you pinch yourself at some point and say, "How the hell did I get here?" The Sullivan show back then was just the most amazing feeling. It was like you know being at Yankee Stadium. It was. I mean, there was. Yeah, I was a kid. I saw Elvis here. I saw the Beatles here, and now I'm here. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was. you know, nothing could be that exciting. It was like falling in love for the first time, like hearing your voice on the radio for the first time, you know, all that stuff. And and uh, there was another story in the book that you were booked on a show with the legendary drummer, uh, oh, yeah. Gene Krupa. Right, right. And and so tell us what that was like. Well, that was pretty sad. I, it was the first time I had ever done uh, Atlantic City. And, uh, uh, you know, Steel Pier. And this is goes back to the spring of 67. And um, I remember I was doing it with uh, Ricky Nelson. And, I, I, you know, both of our names were in, in 40-foot letters. You know, he was doing the, uh, the theater and I was doing the, uh, well, the, whatever you call it, the, the teen thing at the, uh, uh, the big uh, geodome, they mm-hmm. called it. And, uh, in fact, I followed the diving horse. <laughs> so I always knew when I was going to go the on. The diving horse and mom's marriage. Yeah, right, right. right. Follow. So, so, anyway, uh, uh, I, I go back and I look up on stage and just before us is playing this small big band. You know, it was like three horns, 
three saxes, three trumpets. It was a small version of a big band. And they sounded really good. And this uh, uh, drummer uh, uh, was sort of older. I didn't recognize anybody. And um, we go back to the dressing rooms. And uh, I always make it a point to, uh, you know, say hello to the, whoever the opening act is. And so uh, I went and I looked and, and there he was. And I, I was uh, amazed he was on two um, folding chairs, uh, passed out. Uh, in his stage clothes, and uh, the, the stage manager told me that he, uh, I looked over, I couldn't believe it, it was Gene Krupa. And, oh, I just felt terrible, and the stage manager uh, told me that, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, what they do in between shows, they just wake him up for the next show. He was apparently a, a heroin addict. And I, uh, I just felt awful because he was a big hero of mine. And uh, he died later that year. But I just, uh, that was a story I relayed in the book. Yeah. And a cautionary tale in a way because you wound up having your own oh, yes. demons. Then I went and took another pill. And, you know, I, I the whole thing had, had great significance for me because, uh, yeah, I had my own problems. Right. Now, and, and tell us how you first found out about what they were calling diet pills. Well... Yeah, I was, uh, uh, my wife's father uh, worked in the post office in Miami and um, would send samples from pharmaceutical companies up to, you know, vitamin pills and things like that up to, uh, up to us in New York. And this is, uh, oh, the fall of 66. And uh, so we'd get, these cartons of all kinds of different uh, different pills, orange ones and green ones and so forth. And uh, so some of them were what they called diet pills. What they really were is amphetamines. And so I, I popped them and I, I, I felt great, went in the studio and, uh, you know, before I knew it, I was hooked on them. I, was, I took a lot of them during uh, the 1960s and then I... I quit after that, but it was uh, it was a real, you know, they will make you psychotic. And so behind all this other stuff was going on was this uh, addiction to amphetamines. And uh, uh, so I was uh, I was doing the 60s. And um, you said you'd stay up for days on end. Mm -hmm. I would. How many? We'd be, we'd be writing and I just wouldn't want to quit. You know, I would just uh, pretty soon it would be the next morning and. And uh, there I was. In um, 1986, I finally uh, went to the Betty Ford Center. And uh, because I'm an alcoholic too, you yeah. know, it didn't matter. And uh, so, uh, and I uh, finally uh, rid myself of a life of addiction in 1986. And I've been sober for 31 years now. So Good for you. Thank you. You survived a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's why we put that in the intro. <laughs> yeah. You, you, yeah. No, that's true. You're, you're quite right. Yeah. Indomitable is what you are. You, well, I'm still here. Thank God. A lot God. of stuff happened. The good Lord was looking out for me. I mean that sincerely. Let's talk about one of the fascinating parts of the book is when music changed. When you, you guys were, you'd said, first of all, you'd said you'd kind of inadvertently invented bubblegum, which is one of my yes. favorite my favorite things in the book. But me, when too, me too. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, you're, you're off working for Hubert Humphrey. You guys were campaigning for the for Humphrey, and everything changed. Music changed. 
Yes, right under our feet. Yeah. Um, well, it was interesting because uh, uh, a lot of things actually were leading up to this. The Sgt. Pepper album did so well the previous, this is 19, late 67 now. Uh, and uh, when the record companies saw the money that could be made from albums rather than singles, uh, that's really what changed. Only it, it took several months for that to really come about. And in 1968, uh, Hubert Humphrey's office had called us and we went out on the road and uh, with Hubert Humphrey, we became his opening act, basically. And well, before that, you were uh, working with Bobby Kennedy. Well, we had done a rally. Yeah. uh, Just one rally uh, with Robert Kennedy and Gene McCarthy and. Uh, the mayor of New York was was running for president, and John Lindsay. Mayor, mayor Lindsay, yeah. yeah. And this was in New York, and we had been asked if we would play. I can't think of the name of the park, but it's uh, down in South Manhattan, and Union uh, Square. In was it? Yeah. in that area, yeah, okay. Um, uh, and a big park and an outdoor stage, and uh, a lot of college kids. You know, a lot of a lot of kids. Uh, came up and were yelling, sell out, sell out at us, you know. <laughs> and, um, uh, but we, we played and um, uh, uh, all the candidates spoke and uh, we got put on a list. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, we were asked to uh, play at the Robert Kennedy, uh, you know, at the Ambassador Hotel where he was assassinated in, uh, later uh, that year, and uh, of course we couldn't go because we were uh, playing a, a gig in of all places Dallas, Texas, and uh, that's a weird part of the book. Oh, you're, it's you're very in Dealey strange. Plaza, yeah. And we, then you I got went back, and that's right. After uh, uh, this was actually the day before uh, uh, the primary in L.A., or the primary in California, and uh, so we had done. Uh, a gig called the World Teen Fair that night. And uh, the next morning, I'm headed back to New York and I had to stop at Daly Plaza and went there. And I, I was amazed, by the way, how how tiny an area this was. Really tiny. Have you, you th- been there, Gil? Oh, yeah. yeah. You yeah. think of it as being large, uh, you know, this humongous area, but it's really very small. Because it's such a moment of history. It is. You and picture it. It's, it's like it's, the only thing I can compare it to is going to Pearl Harbor and 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 being where the Arizona went down. And you're, you're, there's this solemnness, this quiet, this incredible quiet that um, uh, the silence is deafening. I mean, it's really amazing. So anyway, uh, uh, I then left feeling really weird. I had a bad case of the weirds after I went there and, and saw everything for myself. And I go home back to New York. I turn on my television as I got in and started to unpack just in time to hear that there'd been a shooting at Kennedy headquarters in Los Angeles. And I couldn't believe it. And so, uh, you know, stayed up all night watching and finally they, uh, he was pronounced dead the next day. And I just went into a funk. Uh, I can't explain it really. I just, uh, I felt like the world was ending at that point. And, um, you know, I was 21 years old Mm -hmm. and and, uh, uh, had seen a lot of this stuff. I couldn't believe it. And uh, a couple of weeks later, we get a call from Hubert Humphrey's office, 
who was vice president running right. for president at the time. And by, they knew he was going to be the nominee. And they asked if after the convention, uh, we would meet him in Wheeling, West Virginia and, and play for the rally. And okay, sure. Okay. We will. Absolutely. I'd be honored. So we're watching the night of the convention. We're watching up at my apartment, watching TV and all the kids are getting beat up and, and, you know, we're going, what in the hell have we got ourselves into? You know, is every rally going to be like this? Is, uh, you know, is there going to be this kind of violence everywhere we go? And uh, so anyway, he finally got on at two o'clock in the morning or something like that. And uh, we indeed met him the following uh, Wednesday or Thursday in Wheeling, West Virginia. And he couldn't have been nicer to us. He was... He winds he, up writing liner notes. He did. He, yeah. We we did the whole campaign. He asked me to be president's advisor on youth affairs. Wow. I think I said something like, believe me, the youth are having affairs, and I'm just the guy. <laughs> that uh, but but uh, we became friends, as friendly as you can be with a 21-year-old and a guy running for president. Uh, but um, he was just so good to us, and gave they gave us a jet from Butler Aviation out at LaGuardia, and anytime we could make it, we'd hook up with him. And uh, we were there right until uh, he lost uh, right. at the Leamington Hotel that night. And, and you said, I think it was with the BBC. Yeah. You told them you were... Yes, I told them that I felt it was... I was supposed to... Money Money was a, was the number one record of the decade in in England. It was bigger over there than it was here, believe it or not. And uh, we were asked to do uh, a tour over there in the Top of the Pops show, which was a big BBC show. And um, I had to cancel because I was doing the Humphrey campaign. I just felt it was more important. Uh I said, please understand. They said, we will never play another one of your records, which they didn't do. Um, And uh, uh, I got into a, a big fracas with uh with the bbc over that didn't mean to um but at any rate uh that's how what was your question i mean well, yeah was, no that just how they responded yeah and and they uh that whole uh, thing was a turning point too because you talk about in the book how you came back yes and 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 music bump, changed bump, i'm sorry i got into that's this whole okay thing. you asked me about music that's change. okay <laughs> no the humphrey stuff's interesting ask me how you doing Tom? the humphrey stuff's oh. interesting too and and before i forget uh, Mayor John Lindsay gave Florence Henderson crabs. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's what she claimed. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. that blows yes. my story. Yes. <laughs> John, what were you doing when, when, when he was doing all this stuff with Humphrey right around that time? Were you still in the military? I was mad. <laughs> yeah, he was trying to heal from Moni Moni. I was that's putting right. a gas oh, mask on. Oh, you were still on. pissed off. <laughs> That's right, poor John. Well, I just wanted to say, <laughs> Hubert Humphrey then ended up doing the liner notes to Crimson and Clover. Right, oh. The liner notes to the album. And, you know, we did commercials and, and he did commercials for us and everything. But when we left on the campaign mm-hmm. in August, the biggest groups on the radio were, you know, the Rascals, the Association, right. uh, us, uh, probably Gary Puckett, um, you know, all singles acts, right? 
When we got back 90 days later, it was all albums. It was Led it was Zeppelin. Crosby, was, Stills, yeah. and Nash, Led Zeppelin, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Oh, I missed those singles days. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, you know, and then suddenly uh, everything changed. And we realized that if we didn't start selling albums, our career was probably over. And, and Roulette, of course, was, was a singles label. They never really sold albums. So at that moment, thank God, we had a little record called Crimson and Clover. And Crimson and Clover allowed us, I can't think of any single we ever did that, like Crimson and Clover that would have allowed us to make that jump from AM top 40 yeah, singles perfect transition. to FM album-oriented uh, progressive rock. And I can't think of, of any other record that would have ever allowed us Was that us a happy that. accident or were you it consciously was trying to make the transition into more well, psychedelic both, yeah. but we were very lucky because Crimson and Clover really, uh, uh, and then we almost blew the release of Crimson and Clover. I mean, I tried to to ruin my career. Oh. I tried. <laughs> you have, I tried so many Gilbert, ways. You could relate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You you could have been my advisor. Perhaps, perhaps you heard about his infamous tweet. No. Yes. <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> did you guys prepare uh, Crimson? Well, what what did you uh, what did you plan to play? Because we'll oh we'll, we'll let you we'll, oh plan we, yeah, we'll, yeah. oh, we, oh we, and we, another thing you had dealings with the guy who was the real life Tony Soprano. Well, yes. Uh, uh, you know that many of the characters on The Sopranos were um, characters from real life. Oh, there was a Morris character. Slight change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. his name. Uh, they called Morris Moish. Yeah, because yeah. his real name was Moisha. But uh, uh, you know, uh, Hesh, Hesh on uh, on The Sopranos. That's right. Was. Uh, you know, the Jewish record producer who had the horse farm in upstate New York. Recognized like, it immediately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, Tony Soprano was Tony Salerno, you know. Was, uh, fat Tony. Yeah, Fat yeah. Tony. Yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, you know. And I've, be I've become uh, very good friends with uh, uh, little Steven, Stevie Van Zandt. And uh, he's introduced me to so many of the guys on the show. Uh, and and it was one of my favorite shows. It was The Sopranos. Well, unlike them, you lived it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were actors cast yeah. to play parts. Did, did play you parts. ever watch The Sopranos and go, no, 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 that didn't happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I obviously saw some of the characters were yeah. people that were taken from real life. You know, some of them that I had rubbed shoulders with. But what else did you guys prepare to 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 play? And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep Gilbert out of this one for, the, medley, good of, for the good of music. <laughs> a medley of my cowboy hits, wasn't it? No, no. <laughs> Look over yonder. What do you see? The sun is rising Most definitely And a new day is coming People are changing Ain't it beautiful Crystal blue persuasion 
better get ready Gonna see the light Love, love is the answer Baby, that's all right So don't you give up now It's so easy to find Look to your soul oh, And open your mind Crystal blue persuasion mm-hmm. It's a new vibration Crystal blue persuasion Crystal blue persuasion Persuasion. Wow. <sighs> that sounded great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It, it was missing me. But <laughs> still. <laughs> Considering. That was I told you, you get a tambourine, you got a gig. <laughs> We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. How did that song come together, Tom? Well, uh, because it was a big departure. Yeah, it was one of those songs that uh, just kind of happened by accident. There was a we were playing at college in um, Atlanta, and a kid came up to me with a poem called "Crystal Persuasion," and I went, "Whoa!" And we were always on the make for neat titles or neat hooks, something. And I looked at it, I thought that was such a great combination of words. It had nothing to do with the song, the end of the song. Uh, so we went back to the room, and Mike and Eddie and I wrote the song uh, in about 20 minutes, and Eddie came up with the... just a little line like that. And um, it was really taken lyrically from Book of Revelation in the Bible. And then... Um, we went in the studio and produced it, and we just totally overproduced it. It was, I never have ruined a record like I ruined <laughs> Crystal Blue Persuasion. And I went in, and, and, and we had guitars, and we had a full set of drums, and, and we, I just remember looking at the engineer, I said, this is not the song. And so we spent the next two weeks unproducing it and pulling everything out. And uh, when it ended up uh, uh, finished, it was nothing but a conga drum, a flamenco guitar, a, a little rhythm guitar with the tremolo on it, and an organ, no drums, nothing. And so we had to empty it out and let it breathe to be crystal blue. 
And great. It's one of my favorites. Thank you. You early on when you were desperate for to make a record. Yeah. You met some guy and he had he was going to produce a record for you. And and you he had all the best recording equipment and everything. And then he said to you, but first you have to record yes. my song. Yes. <laughs> yes. One catch to this. Uh <laughs> <clears throat> no, you're talking about the guy who recorded Hanky Panky, Jack uh, Douglas, who was the morning man on WNIL uh, radio. And he, uh, this is back when Didn't I was- did he go on to work with John Yoko? Oh, Jack not the Doug- same Jack Douglas. Oh, okay. Different Jack um, Douglas. And uh, so this is way back in Niles when I was about 15. He brought us into the, 16. He brought us into the studio and he says, we were going to do Hanky Panky, you know, right away. And he says, oh, by the way, guys, you got to record. I want you, before we do your song, we got to do my song. <laughs> oh, so we, we did his song, and it was, it was some god-awful thing. It was called Pretty Little Red Bird. <laughs> do you remember any of it? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Wait. Pretty Little Red Bird. An Indian maid with a feather in her hair and a big black braid. Red bird, red bird, pretty little red bird. I'm in love with pretty. Oh, God. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so, anyway, that was. Uh, yeah, Paul Revere and the Raiders kind of and, a thing, too. And let that me, let wasn't me t- a hit. Uh, no, <laughs> no. It, it, uh, and I couldn't understand it either. It had everything. Um, <laughs> Musk. <laughs> uh, anyway, it uh, so that that died quickly, thank God, and we got to do our song. Then after that, that was Hanky Panky. Yeah, and the rest is history. And speaking of producing, tell us about the. You're in the studio. I am. We're doing a, a brand new album called Alive. John, with you in there? John is with me. Great, very definitely. Great. And um, we are uh, planning to come out with the album the first of the year. Wonderful. And it's my first studio album in 10 years, and we've got a, a lot of interesting people. Stevie Van Zandt's on. We did a remake of Dragon the Line, by the way, which Stevie Van Zandt is on, and he he, he killed it. He really oh, killed it. I can't He's wait great. to hear that. He's great. And, um, uh, oh, it's just uh, there's a bunch of people on it that are, that are with me. But uh, I must tell you um, – this is a real labor of love, and uh, a lot of songs that I that I sh- I was going to record years ago and just never did, and we did them on this album. The album is called Alive. Alive, yeah, which I think is a pretty. Oh, it's one of those titles say, that, that you remember. Yeah. Now you say. also were around with that the uh, payola scam. Oh yes, sure. And well, I went the, the original payola with um, uh, Alan. Alan Freed. Uh, Alan Freed. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't around for that. But do you know that Morris Levy was his manager? Of course. I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. Yeah. But, he was Alan Freed's manager. Right. And together they came this close to trademarking the term rock and roll. Can you imagine? Yes. Wow. Yes. Can you imagine what that now, is? Now, and isn't it too that they they save their own asses by uh, having Alan Freed? Take the fall. Yeah. Well, that's probably true. Uh, uh, I, Alan died penniless, unfortunately. I never got a chance to meet Alan. Uh, he had already passed away by the time uh, I made it. But, uh, you know, he was, his presence was 
very much felt up there. Not only was Morris's manager, but uh, uh, all the history. Because um, he was like one of the biggest. Radio came from guys. Cleveland and yeah. and he was on WINS for years. You and know. It speaks to Morris's vision a little bit too, because didn't he bring Allen in from Cleveland he to did. New York? And- he did, and and. Uh, uh, had the wherewithal to realize that rock and roll was serious thing. Yeah, well, he and also and he also managed Birdland. I mean, he did. He, he, did, he invented invented Birdland. Birdland. Uh, yeah. Morris is it was his nightclub. Yeah, and Ktel Records was also well, part of his Morris's legacy. Morris' story is fascinating yeah. because he's kind of a genius. <clears throat> he he really is, and yeah. and uh, it really was the the um, uh, what happened at Birdland was all these great artists. Uh, Stan Getz wrote Lullaby of Birdland. It was mm-hmm. like his, his uh, it was Morris's first copyright. Morris got into the publishing business first. And um, I'll never forget uh, the story of, you know, he had a jukebox in Birdland. And the, the uh, ASCAP guy came around and asked for money, and, you know, said money, you know, you, you owe for the, and Morris thought the guy was trying to shake him down. And so he asked his lawyer, he said, what's up with this guy? He says, no, you got to pay me. He says, boy, am I in the wrong business. So he has he has all of these artists write songs and record, and his jazz catalog was unbelievable. He started a record company. And, and Latin music, too. Yeah. Thing, and know, then uh, George Goldner came along, and uh, he and George Goldner started making records. And, um, uh, you know, he had... Uh, uh, End Records, Gone Records. George Goldner did Little Anthony. He did uh, the Flamingos, the Chantels, uh, and of course Morris ended up with all this stuff because George uh, was a gambler and would lose tons of money at the racetrack. Morris would buy his masters and buy his publishing, and Morris ended up with this incredible uh, uh, master catalog and publishing catalog of rock and roll and jazz. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it was just incre- before he was 30 years old. I mean, it was just an amazing story. And um, Morris is really the star of the, of the book. He really is. You know. Well, it's the relationship. It is this yeah, very yeah. weird, conflicted father-son dynamic. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it is one of these things like as all the money he cheated you out of and yet, had you gone with another label, yeah, would, you would have had Hanky Panky. And that would have been it. And you'd be singing at a yeah. county fair. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On a boat somewhere. Uh, yeah, which, yeah. Which leads me to a question from one of our guests, and we'll wrap this up soon. But this is uh, this little thing we call Grill the Guests, where our, our listeners get to ask the guests questions. And this is from Laura Pinto, and she says, Hi, Tommy. Having read your book, which was fascinating, I'm left with the impression that despite all that happened with Morris, there was still a genuine love for the man. Is that so, and do you think it was mutual? Well, it is so. And, uh, I mean, uh, whether it's mutual, I don't know. I, it's hard to say. That was sort of would have been wrapped up in, in my last conversation with him that I never got a chance to have. And um, But whenever I think of Morris, I listen, There's uh, he's I'm as tied to to. Morris Levy and Roulette, as you can get, because my entire adult life, my my whole, uh, the, everything I do and everything I am uh, was brought to the surface because of being with Roulette Records. So, you know, I'm I'm blessed 
Yeah. I, when I get oh, to heaven, I got to ask him, ask God about a few of these things. What'd you have in mind? <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> you still, I, I heard you say you're still haunted by him in, in, in some oh, ways. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you can bet that if this book and story had, 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 if he'd been alive, he'd want to own it. He'd demand yeah. it. <laughs> John, did you have the pleasure of meeting Morris at any point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what was your experience of the man? I thought I don't think I was in his office for more than five minutes at a time. Uh -huh. I was just like you know, in and out with Pete. Intimidating though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was uh, quite a character. Big guy. Yeah. In charge. He was. He was very time. intimidating. All the time. I hope when the movie's made, you have a role in the casting of the film because John's you... going to play a corpse. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm going to. But I'm going to speak though, so this way I'll get paid. The lines are easy and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot to memorize. Uh, uh, we should we should say there's kind of a happy ending because when your music finally goes to CD, Tommy, you did get your royalties. Well, yeah, you know what was amazing is when Morris uh, in 1987 was convicted uh, of racketeering and all the rest, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And uh, so he un the first thing he did was unload uh, the publishing and then the masters. The publishing went to... Uh, uh, EMI, uh, which ended up with Sony, and um, uh, the Masters ended up with EMI, which ended up selling the Warner Brothers, uh, Rhino. So, uh, you know, my music is in the hands of reputable people now, and we have this. Uh, so I, but it, but it was, you know, like. More, you know, like Moses going to fair, let my music go. <laughs> and, and I have, you know, and when it finally happened, it was very strange because I, well, you know, we made back a, a great portion of what we had lost. Right, of course. Can I ask you a question? We've had, we had Peter Asher here. We had uh, Rupert Holmes here. Other, Ron sure. Dante, other guys you, you, you know. Ron and Dante's we, a good friend. A good, he's what a, amazing. What a wonderful guy. But what a history he's yeah. had. Yeah, we yeah. had Mark Hudson here too, who yes. I know you, who I know you know. Sure. And we asked Ron and we asked Peter this question, and I think we asked Rupert too. Had a big hit with Pina Colada, and we want to ask you, what is it? Because you alluded to it before. What is it like? Uh, very few people on the planet can answer this question. What is it like to have that hit record for the first time? To experience that? Well, it's like falling in love for the first time. It it never can feel that good again, um, and it uh, honestly, uh, when Hanky Panky hit. Um, it was such a monster record and it was, it felt so good. Uh, you know, the funny part is you memorize everybody else's record when you listen for your record on the radio. Well, you were working in a record store, so you were plugged <laughs> yeah, into that that's world. That's true. That's true. Uh, but, um, and then as you have, we had, we were so lucky to have more and more and more hits. We ended up, uh, doing about 110 million records with, uh, roulette. We did, uh, 23 gold singles, uh, 32 chart records, uh, just a, an immense number of records sold. And uh, we were so lucky. I mean, there's so much, of course, we didn't go into about music and, and you know, records and what happened here, what happened there. Um, I just, all I can say is that I've been really blessed uh, to be able to do what I love doing the most I, I, I all my life. And I, and I can't believe here we are 50 
one years later and we're still doing this. I, I mean, I am just so lucky and so honored and so blessed. I mean that sincerely. That's I thank the hear. good Lord and the fans for the kind of longevity That's great. we've had. And, and you one time got an accountant yes. to approach Mars yes. Levy <laughs> about your $40 Big million. Yeah. And what did Morris Levy say to your accountant? You used that and they'll fish you out of a river. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> that was to my accountant. He said, Tom, yeah. I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> yeah, I think you better find it. The scariest part in the book is maybe is, is where you take it on the lamb to Nashville because, oh, because Morris disappears one day. and Well, let me just tell you, there was, uh, well, I, I don't want to get too deep into this, but what it boiled down to is in 1971, there was a big gang war going on in New York City. And um, uh, the Gambinos were taking over. Uh, the other families, and uh, Morris was on the wrong side. So, uh, oh, there there were so many uh, people who, had, every time you picked up a newspaper, there was another casualty. Somebody was, a body was found here or there. And so uh, I was told, I know in certain terms, it would be a good idea if I left town. Morris suddenly left town, went to Spain with Nate McCallow, who was his enforcer. Oh, no. jeez. <laughs> and um, so... Uh, we were all left holding the bag at roulette. So I was told by my lawyer, be a good idea if I left town for a few weeks till this blows over. So I ended up going to Nashville and uh, Pete Drake uh, and I and DJ Fontana, Elvis's uh, drummer sure. and, and uh, Scotty Moore, who was uh, Elvis's guitar player, made an album down there called My Head, My Bed, and My Red Guitar. It sold four records, and uh, <laughs> but Rolling Stone said it was the the best album I'd ever done, so I'll, I'll take the Stones thing. Uh, but sure. at any rate, I uh, uh, I came back, uh, you know, uh, several months later, and uh, but I had to, I had to, as they say, go on the lamb. You, I you went to go. the mattresses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, here I am, this hit kid from the Midwest. I know. I still got a hayseed sticking out of my tooth. It's a great story. It's, it's you know you're reading it. Gilbert and I were talking before you got here. You're turning the pages of that book and you're saying this is a movie. You know. <laughs> yes. Well, it with, felt like it. With, hopefully, with the music in the movie. Yeah. Too, you know. Uh, well, there's there's some room for a couple of songs in there. Yeah. I'm going to be. By the way, I'm going to be uh, co-producing this film with Barbara Defina and also um, uh, going to be doing. A lot of the music, so uh, it's going to be a real interesting. It has to uh, happen. Yeah, I what, hope so. Yeah. Your mouth to God's ears. Let's and tell us way. about the tour too. Where are you guys? Because we are all you, over. If you want to get, come to our website, uh, just tommyjames.com mm -hmm. and see where we're playing, where we're performing. We're on Facebook, uh, Twitter. We, uh, you know, we're doing the social media. Didn't you just play with the grassroots? Some, some, some of these guys, Cow Sills. You just did a. You just did a show. Well, right? I had a fifty-year. At uh, the Garden State Arts Kate Center. Taylor. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the PNC um, Arts Center in New Jersey. Um, we just did a 50-year celebration of uh, my career, and we had so many of the people that I was involved with and that I knew. And, yeah, the councils were there, Alive and Kicking, who I produced. Oh, yeah, Tighter, Tighter. You right. know that song, Gil? Oh, how does that? You know it. Tommy, Tommy produced okay. that record. Hold on. Just a little bit tighter now, oh, baby. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> I love you so much and I can't let go. Hold on. Just a little bit tighter now, 
You know that. Always love that one. Thank you. Alive and, and kicking. And before you go, even if it's just one stanza of the song, I got to sing Moni Moni. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> but, but I need the words to it. <laughs> well, oh, they'll carry it. Yeah. Well, here she come now, said Moni Moni. Well, shoot him down, turn around, come on, Moni. Union scale is next. (laughs) You don't know how you made his month with that one. (laughs) I was enjoying that a lot, Gil. Right until you came in. Yes. (laughs) You're a sport, Tom. That's what and John. That's what most women have said to me. I told you he sat here. (laughs) You're a sport. <laughs> no, no. I I enjoyed you until you came in. Oh yeah. <laughs> we will send we will send you a clip of Gilbert singing MacArthur right. Park with Jimmy Webb right in Ooh, right in MacArthur. that chair. MacArthur. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then MacArthur you, Park is fucking in the rain. You got it. Oh. He did Wichita lineman too. <laughs> we're gonna cut her. We're gonna cut an LP. That's a hard one. Ooh. <laughs> you know, you're right. You could take these songs. And have him sing his version. I like that. <laughs> I like that. That idea. would sell. Baby. I got him doing "Sugar Sugar," Wichita lineman, uh, Rainbow Connection. Yes. Uh, uh, tie oh. a yellow ribbon. Uh, nice to be around. You did say he said. You with know, Paul you, you got a market for that. You could sell that to uh, mental patients. Yes, I, <laughs> yeah. that's right. <laughs> When when the cops want to disperse uh, rioters, it would also <laughs> right. yeah, it would also come in right. handy. So the album is called Alive. Yes, you remembered. See? Yes, the tour. Go to Tommy's website, TommyJames.com. Right, we're gonna... and and the book is Me, the Mob, and the Music. Yes, sir. One hell of a ride with Tommy Janes and the Shondells. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Oh. I had a ball. I got to tell you, I haven't had this much fun since uh, the Schwartz Bar Mitzvah. Wasn't it? <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> we had a ball. We had a ball. Thanks, John. Thanks and, for and, thanks for doing this. And it's John Ash. Ash. Oh, and send people to John Ash's website too. Yeah. John, what is that? JonathanAsh.com. But John. leave the last A off for savings. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, did I hear you make a Broadway Danny Rose reference in an, in an interview that I saw online? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you said to the interviewer, "May I interject something at this juncture?" Yeah. And I said, I recognize that. You're right. You got that, right? <laughs> you gave yourself away. Thanks, guys. This was Thank a you. treat for us. It's great. Well, it's so wonderful. Thanks, guys. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we have been talking about how former New York mayor 
John Lindsay gave Florence <laughs> Henderson crabs. Is that what we were talking yeah, about? Yeah, and then we had some musician in. Yeah. We, wa- <laughs> we, we want to thank Carol, too, for yeah. setting this up. Thank you so much, Carol, and, for your and work. Thank you, thank you for letting me sing two duets. You were good. Yes, with with the great uh, Tommy James. <laughs> thank you, Jonathan. Thank yes, you, Tommy. Thank you, guys. A very treat, much. A treat for us. Thank you. Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santa Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Our researchers are Paul Rayburn and Andrea Simmons. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, Nancy Chinchar, and John Bradley Seals. Photography by Charles Eshelman. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. <laughs>